Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is a podcast where we speak to absolutely fascinating, intriguing and memorable individuals from across the comedy world. Now today's guest is all the way from Canada, a place where many Canadian comics invade America and the UK and become top comedians there and sell out shows. He, he is a man who has conquered Canada. He is a man who is well known as the king of crowd work. He can turn a bottle of water into lemonade just through his words. You would think that you're watching magic in terms of his crowd work. He is one of the most best improvisational comedians you will ever meet. Please welcome Jeff Leeson. Wow, thank you very much, man. I appreciate the intro. I thought you were bringing somebody else on there for a second. That was uh, that was a beautiful introduction. Thank you. That might have been the best introduction I've ever got. <laughs> if someone actually introduces someone like that, would that be sort of too as a stand-up maybe too much? Because I've said that a few comics have said, "No, no, just just say my name." You do that, you're putting too much pressure on me. Yeah, well, if we were at a show and you were introducing me to an audience, <laughs> I think immediately their reaction would be like, who the hell is this guy or who does he think he is? <laughs> and so you can you can kind of put a comedian, I think, at a disadvantage if you really build them up uh, to go on in front of people because, you know, it, it can it can be a little tough. But in this uh, situation, uh, nobody's here to judge they're just listening to it. So I, I'm fine with them uh, feeling that way and not having to be right in front of them. So I appreciate that. It's uh, now you, you've had quite an intriguing journey in comedy. Like you've been going on for something around 22 years. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think I just started my 23rd year uh, of, of stand up comedy, starting when I was 14 years old. Oh. That's incredible. I mean, to be honest, I, I think that I find quite intriguing is I think a lot of comedians, they, they, they maybe see a thought a bit earlier about starting it. I mean, my, my, myself, when I was a teenager, 17, I wanted to do it, but someone put me off. But to be 14, was it more like you don't think too much about other things and you just thought you would have fun? And like other teenagers would probably just shit themselves before they started even doing it. How, how did you how did you get the balls to do it? Or was it because you being so young, you just went. You didn't think about things like Boris Becker and just did it anyway. Yeah, it's it's more that like I I always have said um, if I was gonna start now, I don't even know if I'd have the balls to do it now in my thirties. But when I was fourteen, it was just something that seemed so like crazy to you know. It was just a dream. It was just like. I was a huge fan of stand-up comedy. I was just, a, I loved the art. I loved the craft of it. I loved watching it. And I just was fascinated with everything about it and wanted to try it. And um, it was it was just one of those things where, you know, you're you're too young to know any better and, and too dumb to, <laughs> to really think about it. And um, you know, my family was really supportive and, and were behind it. And so they, they let me do it. And I absolutely fell in love with it immediately. I was terrible. I was absolutely, uh, uh, one of the worst, probably one of the worst comedians, you know, ever when I started as a lot of people are, but, um, but it, you know, it was uh, good enough. And I got, uh, a, a 
you know, the, the, um, the experience enough to keep going at it. Hmm. it. Does it help with the learning in terms of like, because you're willing to take all sorts of crazy risks, whilst I think a lot of people as they get older, they're a lot more risk averse of like trying completely wild things. Did that and did that quicken in some respects your learning process in stand up because you're so young? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I I think it was it was one of those things where I was so young on every show. I mean, I was the youngest person in the room uh, by far. I mean, by sometimes 20 or 30 years, uh, at least at least 10 years younger than anybody else on the show. So I think just people didn't expect anything or much of any of anything from me. And so that allowed me to fail. And, and it was kind of a soft landing because they were, even though I was bombing and, and not doing well at all, it was really not funny. People more were like, wow, good for him for being so young and actually trying this. I would never have the guts to get up there and do it, you know, uh, at, in my thirties or forties. And, and I think that really helped me because it really, I didn't get the, the booed off stage and the attacks from the audience because for the most part, they were mothers and fathers who looked at me almost like uh, if my son was up there right now, I'd be mortified. Uh, and, and so they, they treated me well. And I think that helped my growth early on. Hmm. If they'd been a bit harder, would it, would it probably stop you from doing it? I, I that's tough to tell. I don't know, but I would say I don't think so. I I, I honestly I don't think there was anything that was going to stop this, barring maybe like getting attacked or something. Like if if somebody physically attacked me on stage or something like that. But I was a pretty like, you know, I I I was a I I, I just didn't give a shit up. Can I swear on this? Yeah, say whatever yeah, you I, want. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I really didn't give a shit what people thought. Like it, it, it never even entered my mind at that time. Like again, if I had started now, I think I would have. But at that time, I was just so excited that I was able to get on stage and be doing what these, you know, in my mind at that time, larger than life characters were doing on TV that I saw. I was just so excited to be there that even if I got heckled, I'd almost. I'd almost take it as like, uh, you know, as, as just part of the, the learning experience or something like that. But yeah, I, I don't know. Hard to say now, but I, I think even if I had dealt with hecklers and stuff like that, I think I'd been okay. And honestly, like I had a, a knack for some reason, which I think comes from my family because there's a lot of ball busting in my family. And it was like a lot of jokes around the table and stuff like that all the time. And I just could deal with things like, uh, you know, hecklers or I had a, a couple minor hecklers, like when I was like 15, 16 years old, certainly my first time at a comedy club, there was a heckler and I kind of shut them down, not in an asshole way, but in a way that got a, a response from the audience. So that kind of came naturally to me pretty quickly as well. And is that okay? So, but one of the things that is interesting about you as well, I mean, that is, is you're called your one of your nicknames is the king of crowd work. Now, that is a very interesting nickname. And like, how did you become the, the crowd work connoisseur? And how have you got to the point now from when you start where you're able to tour all the time, whilst a lot of comics 
I think across the globe, in most, a lot of comedy cities, they're having to work for a lot of promoters, travel across 30, 40 miles, get paid maybe $30 for a four hour journey. And how have you managed to sort of escape the red ocean in some respects and into a place where you're able to do things on your own terms? Because that is amazing. Yeah, uh, well, I have certainly done those, uh, you know, four, five, six hour drives for sometimes for no money. I mean, at one point, yeah. $30 would have seemed like I was rich from from doing for for doing for traveling and doing stand up comedy. Um, I mean, everybody goes through that early on in, yeah. in this business. It's it, it, there's no way to not do it. Other than like staying in one city, like if you're just in Toronto or just in New York or just in LA, the problem with that is you become accustomed to just those audiences. You really do need to travel uh, in stand-up to really get the full grasp of it. But for me, um, the the just touching on the crowd work thing, that nickname came from a promoter that I worked for in London, Ontario, who just started calling me that. I actually don't like it. I, I oh. don't like that nickname. Not that I'm, I, 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 people call me it and people put it on posters and marketing and stuff like that. It's a, it's a good marketing tool because it's, it's sort of an interesting, you know, thing. The only reason I don't like it is there's lots of comics that do crowd work, uh, lots that are much better than I am at it and lots of people that do a phenomenal job. And so, um, you know, to call myself the king of that, I, I just have never gotten on board with that. I've let other people call me that if that's how they feel. And, you know, certainly promoters and stuff have used it as, as a marketing tool. But for me, that that uh, name, that, that sort of moniker came from a, a promoter in London. I worked for him a few times. And, um, you know, had some really good shows. He started calling me that. He put it on like some poster, or some marketing thing years ago, and it just kind of stuck. Um, and then uh, and then the, the other part of your question there about getting my, like starting to do my own shows. What happened was, uh, have you ever heard of Yuck Yucks? Yes. Yeah. So the owner of Yuck Yucks, um, when I was 18 years old, I had been doing comedy for four years. I had been doing open mics and and um, really was doing the stuff you're talking about, except rather than traveling three, four hours for 30 bucks, I was traveling three, four hours a night for no money, doing five minutes of comedy. And in the early going, my mother was the one driving me because I didn't have a license. I was too young. And so I got to, when I was 18, I got to a point where I thought, I want to submit to Yuck Yucks and try to be an opening act. I submitted a VHS tape. I called uh, it called in to, there, there was a, a number you could call, you could leave a message. I kept calling and calling. Finally, one day my phone rings. It's the owner, it's the head of Yuck Yucks, Mark Breslin, whose name is on every Yuck Yucks sign you've ever seen. And he called me and he said, uh, Listen, I got your tape. Um, I watched it, and uh, it was one of the worst stand-up comedy performances I've ever seen. He goes, "I see that you're young, um, and uh, you should probably think about doing something else with your life. And this is not for everybody, and I don't think it's for you. Good luck." And actually, I don't think there was a good luck. It was just and that's it, and hung up the phone. 
and um, which was absolutely devastating at 18 years old to have, you know, in Canada at that time, Yuck Yucks was really the only um, comedy club or comedy chain or comedy thing really that was happening anywhere. And uh, I was absolutely devastated. I was crushed. I lived at home, obviously, at the time I was going to school, high school, and um, went upstairs. I told my mom, I said, here's what happened. I'm basically on the verge of tears. And my mom said, well, he said you can't work for Yuck Yucks, right? And I said, yeah, that's that's what he's saying. I he, Not only is he saying can't work for Yuck Yucks, he's telling me I shouldn't do this at all. And she said, well, there are other places you could do comedy. I mean, why don't you just do your own thing? And um, within about a year, maybe a, a year and a half after that time, I was getting set to go on my first uh, 11 city tour, which were all shows that I booked. They were at bars, uh, small, you know, very small bars all over Ontario. Um, and I was uh, doing comedy and that was it for me. Uh, that, once I got the taste of doing things myself and sort of, um, you know, going through my, my own process of booking the shows, that was it. And, uh, and I never looked back from that, from that point on. Hmm. And you've decided that that would be your main thing, just to book loads of shows and take things into your own hands. Yeah. I mean, it was really, for me, it was like no other option. It's either you do this thing that you have a passion and a love for. And the only thing you really want to do, I had no plan B like I, I don't have a college diploma I don't have a university degree I don't have any skills to speak of at all I have no you know nothing this was it 100% from 14 to I'm 37 now um, that that was it and all I wanted to do and once I realized I could book my own shows and didn't need to sit around and wait for somebody to call me and say we have a gig for you four hours away for 30 bucks um, I, I was dead set on this is, this is how I'm going to do it from there. It just became a matter of how much time, effort, energy, are you willing to put into this to get what you want? And, and the only way to get better in stand-up comedy is to do it. You, there's no way to practice really without getting in front of a crowd. And for me, it was how many crowds can I put myself in front of each week? Uh, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, on the road. I wanted to travel. I didn't want to do comedy in the same city. And the only way to do that uh, at that time and, and now was to book it myself and route it. You know, I, so I got I became my own agent. It was OK, I, if I'm in this city and I want to go two hours, away, which which direction can I go and what you know looking up venues in that city calling them uh there were times i would type out a whole letter and mail letters out to venues uh this is sort of pre-email or right when email was sort of just beginning and so that was it from there for me that was uh the, that was my way into comedy and has always been my way and now what's interesting is now 20 something years later that is the industry the the industry is is now diy do it yourself uh everything podcasting stand up tours everything like that uh you know content video stuff 
it, it's it's all that. And for me, I feel like I've had a twenty something head, twenty years something head start um, on, on people because I've always done this myself from the very beginning. Well, one of the things that I've thought of is one of the great things about the London circuit or the UK circuit is the Edinburgh Fringe. Like you get 40 minutes, you get to go up there and you get to, you know, if you get, do a 40 minute show, you have to work hard to go and do it. But one of the things in America, it takes maybe 15 years to build something of that level or even yeah. longer. And I think, although it's all refined, but it's a very long process, like rather than just taking chances and seeing where you can go quicker. And if you book to show, you, you, you have that pressure but you get to try things out quicker rather than wait that long before you try it out. It's yeah. because you were putting your shows and you were the sole performer where if it, if it went bad, it was your fault. If it went good, it was your fault. There's no one to blame. There's no one to that. How would that, would you say that helped you more than perhaps a comic who would get stuck in the open mic circuit for years and years before they could progress into that level? How, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it certainly made me handle pressure a, a lot better because the pressure was 100% on me. I was doing longer shows. I mean, normally you do five to seven minutes for years. And I did that. I mean, from 14 to 18, five to seven minutes, 14 years old to 18 years old. I mean, five to seven minutes was uh, was what I was doing. And, um, and then once I started to build... 20 minutes and 50, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, and, and then once I started headlining, which admittedly I did way too early, way, way, way too early. Um, you know, I should have been an opening act far longer than I was, but what it taught me was, um, how to handle pressure, how to take a show and realize that it's, it's on my back and I need to, I, you know, I need to carry this. I need to be as good as I possibly can. And I was not, I, I was absolutely not good. Um, and it just helped me deal with like rejection because audiences for the most part did not like what I was doing. There was no relatability. I was too young. They were older than I was. Um, the, you know, I was talking about stuff that was like, you know, coming out of high school, like homework and shit like that. And they're, you know, they're on their third divorce and a, and a, have house payments and, you know, child child uh, support payments and all that shit while I'm talking about how my mother uh, didn't make me dinner last week that I wanted or so, you know. Um, so there was not a lot of relatability. So it really, it really helped me um, get the, the, the terrible years and the bombing and the eating shit out of the way at such a young and early age uh, and and then ultimately gave me you know extreme comfort on stage it was like i've been through the worst the worst feeling is nobody laughs and there's dead silence it's not even hecklers hecklers you can work with but if nobody says anything if people are just sitting there stone-faced not a word not a sound not a laugh um, that's the worst thing you can go through really in comedy. And I dealt with that a lot. And once I realized like, oh, I can deal with this. Um, it just, be, it just allowed me extreme comfort on stage eventually. Hmm. And you must've had a lot of, cause you were start, you must've had a lot of things that you didn't know when you started out booking all these shows. Like, hmm. I mean, so many, you must've been like, 
God, how do I advertise this? How do I advertise that? You must have had a lot of car crashes when you when you're building up all these tours. And it must have I mean, how long did it take before you started like figuring things out in terms of booking the right venues, knowing how to promote it and what how to prepare for the different crowds that you get in different parts of Canada and all that? Yeah, I, I mean in in many respects, I'm still figuring that out. It's it's an ongoing process because you know, in in the beginning, there was no social media at that time. There was no there was no um, video like there was no YouTube. No, no way to get your stuff in front of people other than a poster. So I would have a friend of mine who knew how to do some graphics. He made up a poster. I'd print off a bunch of them. I would mail them to the venue. They would sometimes put them up, sometimes not do anything with them. Um, and otherwise, I mean, it, there was radio and stuff like that, but I had no money, so I couldn't buy radio ads. There was TV in some small markets, but I had no money to buy TV ads either. So, you know, it was really a matter of like, sometimes you would get a full house because the bar um, knew that, you know, they had sort of a built-in audience of people who would come and support them no matter what they were doing. And sometimes you would show up and there'd be absolutely nobody there. But again, that helped me deal with, you know, a lot of comics go through the open mics of seven minutes talking to just comedians. I went through 30 minutes or 40 minutes of talking to sometimes just the staff or just tables and chairs and one server that's, you know, cleaning up. Um, and so again, it, it just, it just made me definitely way more grateful when people showed up that it was like, oh, wow, we actually have a, an audience tonight. We actually have people that are here to see a show um, and, and really elevated my game when, there were people because I knew what it was like to have nobody there. But now, you know, even now it's still an ongoing battle of how do we, how do we promote social media? Obviously the number one way to promote now, um, where do you put your, your marketing dollars? Do you put, you know, Facebook at one point was number one, probably Instagram is becoming a little bit better on that side, still Facebook to an older generation, tick, utilizing TikTok videos to try to get people in certain markets. So it's still an ongoing, um, you know, work in progress on how to really properly market these shows. And sometimes you hit a home run and you, you get a packed house and there are still nights where you show up and for whatever reason, it just didn't work. Especially in Canada, if you have to deal with like, the Toronto Maple Leafs or somebody being in the playoffs or stuff like that. It's like, you got to know all of that going in and know what you're battling against. Um, and then going into certain towns, if it's a small town and there's another event going on and you've got to battle with that, how do you draw people? How do you get them to come in from like neighboring towns and all that kind of stuff. So just always a, an ongoing, um, you know, sort of education, I would say, in, in exactly how to uh, market these shows properly. Hmm. It's, yeah, it's it's a lot, the things are definitely a lot easier now, isn't it? So many comics, like, during the pandemic, they just shot up. Massive, like, you see so many comics that you know of struggling for years, and as soon as TikTok came along, boom, they've had everything they ever wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, social media is great for that. Like, you know, the, 
the comedians that have put videos on and those videos hit and then all of a sudden they're they're selling out uh, you know theaters and stuff the downside is every asshole with a camera fancies himself a comedian so now you've got you know how do you decipher who's a comedian who really is a comedian and who's an idiot with a cam with a camera because what's ended up happening quite a lot is somebody will go viral they'll develop a fan base somebody will start booking them on these live tours and live shows but they don't have a fucking act they, they don't they can't perform live and you hear about it all the time constantly people you know somebody will sell out a theater and people will leave disappointed because they have no act they're viral and they're you know their videos are great but live they have no idea how to entertain an audience so we are seeing quite a bit of that now as well but um you know but ticket sales is what the game is so we are seeing a time now where you do have you you can take you know your your career into your own hands you can put your own content out you can develop a fan base but if you don't work on that live show and having something that people leave feeling like that was worth the money you can you can really ruin things pretty quickly in that sense mm. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a thin line, isn't it? No, not a thin line. It's it's something that is. It's it's really good for the comedians that have earned their craft, but I mean, it's it's dangerous, in a way, for other comics who aren't as successful. Marketing wise, because it will make they'll think all comedians are bad like that. Especially especially if they haven't seen a comedy Absolutely. show before. That's right. And that happens all the time. Like, I can't tell you how many times I, I've lost shows because somebody booked a comedian and either saved money, like they booked somebody for 75 bucks or 50 bucks. They brought them in. They absolutely were terrible. They offended people. And now me, a 22 year veteran comedian is coming in to say, can I you know, entertain either at a corporate event or a live show. And they go, we've had stand-up comedy here. It doesn't work. And you got to go, what the fuck do you mean? Like, what does that mean? You've had stand-up. Who did you book? And they go, well, we booked, uh, you know, this guy that works here, his buddy, Larry, he does comedy. And we booked him for 50 bucks and he came in and he was horrible. Well, how many shows has Larry done? Oh, this was his first show. Well, that's, you're, you're talking about stand-up comedy doesn't work here. Larry doesn't work here. L Larry didn't do the job that, because Larry's not a comedian, you know? And, and I've had so many, so many, like I can't even tell you how many of those shows over the years I've lost corporate-wise or, or, you know, at, at bars and venues where you hear comedy doesn't work here, but really it's whoever the hell you booked was shit and you you wanted to save money and wanted to try to get the cheapest form of entertainment. Well, it's just like if you buy a cheap car and it breaks down or you buy a cheap pair of shoes and the fucking sole comes off the first time you wear them, you spend the money, get a professional, and then the show will be better. Don't spend the money and you're going to regret it later, which happens all the time. And now with some, you know, some people put a five minute set on, and maybe it's their first five minute set. And for some reason it goes viral and they might develop a fan base, but they can't sustain it uh, because they have no idea what they're doing at these live shows. Hmm. But I mean, if, if you are 
new and you're starting out, you are tempted to not bother about the consequences and just to do it anyway. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like you do need to do every single opportunity that comes your way in the beginning because you need the stage time, but you got to know your place. Like if some, if you have five minutes of material, seriously, five minutes, do five minutes. If somebody's asked you to do 30 minutes, don't, don't say yes, because yes, you can talk for 30 minutes. Absolutely. But your five minutes is up. Now you've got 25 minutes of horseshit filler that nobody is going to laugh at. And that's what they're going to remember. They ain't going to remember the five minutes that was good. They're going to remember the 25 that was absolutely terrible. And not only that, the, the far more severe repercussions could be some venue or some corporate thing doesn't do comedy anymore because you went in and ruined it for everybody. So there's a, there's a, you know, absolutely in the beginning stages of comedy, every single opportunity you get, you do like I used to, I did comedy on back patio decks. I've done comedy outside at weird, you know, festivals. I've done talent shows. I've done high school talent, like just every situation you can imagine which is how you get better at stand-up comedy but i find that it's it's the guy it's the people who get into comedy that aren't honest about how long they can actually do can you actually do 30 minutes or are you just going to talk for 30 and you really have five if that's the case book a headliner book a an, you know a middle act book a host and then you do a set you make some money off the booking if if you're the one booking it and you get your stage time and you've covered up what you can't do with people who actually know what they are doing and you still get your, your practice time in, you know? Um, but it's, but it's so many situations where people are not, they're, they're not just not honest either with themselves or with whoever's booking the show on how much time they can actually do for real and like do it properly. Yeah. It's, it's the, What's it called? The Diane-Kruger effect, isn't it? The the less you know, the more you think you know about certain things. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that is really get, annoys me at the moment, like running shows and like being comic, is the amount of times someone will go up, like an audience member will think that comedy is this and that, and they can just get up on stage and do well, and they start heckling. I remember I had one guy who was heckling the show, and I put him down. He just he wanted to go on. I put him on. Everyone booed him, and he says, "Oh, now I respect what you guys do." <laughs> and then the other thing is when people try and think that they know about something when they don't. And I think comedy is definitely one of the areas where people think they understand comedy and know a lot about comedy when they've never set foot on stage, they've never worked in comedy in any capacity, and they think they can tell you how to do your job or how it works, and they don't think about you know. If the lighting's not right, you can't see the comment. If the mic isn't right, you can't hear oh. them tell the jokes. Or if, if, and I get that so many times, and it's a bit like freedom of speech is a good thing, but I think you know freedom of speech to a certain extent. Like if you're not if you're not a professional basketball player, professional boxer player, boxer, you know, hold on a bit about what you're saying because you're just gonna you're just gonna talk shit. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I mean one of one of the main reasons for that is stand-up is so accessible now. It's on all over YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Netflix. And people are watching people make it look easy because they've been doing it for a long time. 
And so they think because they're watching it and they see it done well, that, that they somehow know how it's done. They have no idea. And, and um, you know, everybody's, everybody obviously nowadays has an opinion, but they also have an area to put that opinion, social media and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, years and years ago, you would watch a comedian on TV and maybe you're talking about it with your neighbor, but you had nowhere to put your actual opinion. And now it's, it's, you know, all over the place with everybody who thinks they know what they're talking about, but they, they just don't. Um, And, and everybody, you know, not every comedian is for everybody. It's like some comedians are going to talk about something that, that is for you and you're going to like it. And other comics are not and those are the you know it's not like well i want him to change what he's talking about don't listen to him that listen to another comedian that you know he's too dirty listen to a clean guy he's too clean listen to a dirty guy like there's 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 all you know people are all over the place with that but absolutely there's a lot of people i i one of my favorite things ever to watch is the guy who's the funniest guy at work think he can do stand-up comedy and and come into the green room at an amateur night and he's joking around you know mr mr finger guns and i'm i'm the guy in the cafeteria that's got everybody rolling because i'm doing jokes about the factory and i'm doing jokes about our manager and i'm doing inside jokes that all these people get but now that same guy is in front of a room full of strangers that are expecting him to make him laugh. And he absolutely eats shit. It's one of my favorite things to watch <laughs> is somebody be humbled like that. Uh, because that stand up, that is comedy. That is like, if you want to get right down to like, what is stand up comedy, especially in the beginning, it's, I think this is funny. And you find out immediately that it's not to a, to a room full of people. Um, and I've seen that uh, quite a bit, which is always one of my favorite things to witness. Hmm. It's yeah, it, it's mine too. <laughs> no, it, it's it, it's always it's always good to watch people be humbled and yeah. absolutely. And and I'm I'm not talking about like I don't enjoy watching comics bomb when they're a comic and they're really working on. It. I just mean somebody who comes into the it comes into the green room with a sense of arrogance as if even though I've never done this before, I think I'm better than everybody in this room because I made my boss laugh and I made my friends laugh at work and I do it every day. And, and to watch their face when they get, you know, that walk out to the mic, that confident walk to the mic, the grabbing of the mic, and to watch their facial expression change as the first joke that they thought was going to kill each shit. And everyone after that does worse and worse and worse, watching their face as they realize how fucking hard this is how difficult it is to make a room full of people laugh who are expecting you to make them laugh. The people at work are not expecting to laugh. They're there to work. If you can, if you lighten their day with a laugh, they're appreciative. These people paid money for you to make them laugh and watching somebody realize just how hard it is, is like one of my all time favorite 
things to watch. I, I would, I would go to a show full of those people just to watch that because I would have the greatest time ever. I, I think it's absolutely awesome watching somebody be humbled by it. Not a bomb, not a bomb. I, I don't, you know, <laughs> the bomb. But if you uh, if you arrogantly walk in and uh, and think you're just going to be the best comedian ever at this. I love it. The other thing I love is when somebody brings a bunch of their friends. So they'll bring like 30 people to watch their first time and they crush because it's their friends and watching the second time when nobody shows up and seeing that same look on their face of like, Oh fuck that. What happened here? Well, what happened is this is not a room full of your friends. This is a room full of people who you just disappointed thoroughly. I love that. What would be the, can I ask you a question? What would be the, so if following on from what you said there about comedians being arrogant and that, what would be a superpower that would be most useful to you as a comedian or to any comedian that's starting up as a result of things like that? A superpower. Yeah. Uh, like I, I don't know about, I don't know about like an actual super, but the ability, like if you, if you had the ability to just um, not like give a fuck, not give a fuck, not in the sense of like, not give a fuck as you know, at what you're doing, put the time, effort and energy into learning the craft and how to write a joke and all that kind of stuff. But the, uh, you know, so many people go up in the early stages that really want to do comedy and they bomb and they walk off stage and they either never do it again or they think, well, that's it for me, but it's not. So I think like either tough skin or like the, the, the just not, not caring about what these people think in the early going um, in a, in a sense, cause you also, you, you don't want to, you don't want to be ignorant about it. You don't want to walk up and they don't laugh and you walk off and go, well, that was great. Cause I've seen that before too. I've seen a lot of comics that they, they don't have a grasp on what they're doing. Like I, I've, I used to work with a few people that would go up, the audience would be, I remember one time I worked with a guy and the, the, promoter of the event while he was on stage came over to me and said how much longer is he up there we have to get him off and I said oh he's got about five seven minutes left and he said we cannot we cannot go any further on this wave him off or light him or something get him off so I gave him a light he still did another three four minutes oh. and when he when he got off he was like that was so much fun, man. What a great time. What a great audience. And I mean, people were damn near leaving. Uh, and, and he had just no idea. He had no grasp of the actual situation. So um, that's, you know, that's a little bit too far on either not caring or not giving a fuck. But I think the more, the more in the beginning that you can have, you know, just take a bomb and, and take it for what it's worth and not let it um affect you uh over you know i i know in in my early days if i had a really bad show up to three four days after would affect me because i i wanted it so bad i wanted to be good at it so bad and i could not figure it out and it you know would put me in sort of not not a depression but like sad almost sadness and this gloomy feeling 
um, it, that I, I wish I had the ability to just shake it off uh, much quicker. Hmm. It's, and with, um, what's the question I want to go into now? With everything that's sort of, with, you've done in comedy and like where you are now, how would other comics describe you, Jeff? Like, would they say, now this is sound like a job interview now. <laughs> yeah. Um, how would other comics describe me? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, you'd, obviously you'd have to really ask them um, to know that for sure. I, I would say it really depends on how well they know me. I, like it, some people work have, you know, work with me really closely. And so those people would definitely know more about some comics might say I'm lazy because I go up and I improvise a show and, and they think, well, he doesn't spend any time writing or he doesn't spend time on an act, you know, on, on a quote unquote act. Um, Whereas other comics that know me would know that, you know, 12 hours a day, I'm sitting at a computer doing all of my own booking, all of my own scheduling, all of my own routing, all of my own uh, booking of hotels, all of the sponsorships, uh, renting theaters, doing promotional stuff, doing marketing stuff, doing all the content, doing all the editing, uh, you know, working with my team of editors, going back and forth on stuff, uploading video, like, so some comics would describe me, I think, as a as a very hard worker and somebody that's trying to do everything that he can to move his career forward. And I think other comics that don't know me would describe me as lazy because all they're looking at is is, you know, he doesn't spend eight hours a day in a Starbucks writing jokes. Hmm. And that, what I mean, that's. That's, I think that's that's one of the big things of comedy that I find a bit irritating. It's very homogenized to a certain style of comedy or certain thing. And like if you the big clubs and a lot of TV work, it's all on punchline setup. It's there's there's a lot of different types of comedy that can work quite well. There's comedians that don't just do jokes, they do props, they do magic. There's all sorts of great comics that are like that. Um, like John Lenehan from Canada, he's one of the be best magician, magician and comedians out there. It's, but with you bit doing improv and crowd work, would I be able to ask some sort of advice on that? Because a lot of comics do struggle in that. And what advice would you give to people who are looking to create crowd work out of nothing? Yeah, the best advice I can give on that is don't do it too early. It's not something you need to know early on. Um, dealing with hecklers is different than crowd work. If you're talking about crowd work as in like you pick somebody, you ask them a question, you see what they say and you try to take it and run with it. I would say that <clears throat> there's a lot of comedians that try that way too early and then decide they're not that good at it um or get nervous to try it again um the biggest thing with crowd work is you have to know how to do stand-up comedy you have to know the art you, you have to know the craft for me i spent the first 12 
11, 12 years of my career doing strictly written material. It, there was abs there was very, very little, if any, crowd work in each and every show. And that allowed me to figure out how to write a joke, how to do a bit, how to do a setup, a punchline, you know, how really how to do this. And then when I started veering off into the audience, I would notice like I am having a lot more fun with this. I'm, you know, this is exhilarating. This is exciting here because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what they're going to say. And can I take what they say and run with it and actually make something entertaining about it? So I would say if you want to be any good at crowd work at all, make sure you know how to do stand-up comedy, make sure you know how to write a joke, and then see if you can challenge yourself to do it in the moment rather than having a, an opportunity to write something, try it, rewrite it, try it again, go back, change a few words, try to try it again um can you do it in the moment and and don't think you have don't think you have to either some some comics think there's a lot of comedians that work with me and they open for me and they think because i'm a crowd work guy they have to do it i'd rather you didn't because there's no need for the audience to see that done poorly before they see it done in a way that has been worked on over several years because that can also turn them off. I, I've had a lot of comedians that they do absolutely awful crowd work. They just don't know what they're doing. They think they need to do it because of, I'm, they're working with me. And then I go up and I realize very quickly, oh, this audience is turned off from being talked to because this person offended them or you know, made them feel uncomfortable or something like that. So I would also say like, don't do it too early give yourself a chance to grow, give yourself a chance to learn the art of stand-up comedy first. And then if you feel like it's something you could do on the fly and you're in the, in the moment, you know, if, if you think, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable enough and confident enough with myself on stage to take something and run with it, then start testing the waters and start testing the waters really lightly, like really lightly come out, do a couple jokes, get the audience on your side, dip your toe with a couple questions, see if it works and get immediately back into your set and also cover it up with some really good stuff. Like if you have four really good jokes, do two of them, little bit of crowd work, cover that up with the, you know, two really good jokes that you know is going to get them back if you lose them, because it is very, very easy to lose the audience on crowd work, especially if you're doing it too soon. But do, do you put some jokes in as well, or is it just all 100% crowd work? Now, where I'm at right now, it's it's or pr pretty much it's all crowd work. Now, my goal for any show I do is I want to create a personal and unique experience for each and every audience so that when they leave, whether they liked it or not, whether they found me funny or not, they that was their show i just did a show completely for you and you will never see that again hmm. and is there any sort of loopholes or thoughts so you say that you're very in the room and so you spot things is there any thing do you look watch the room beforehand to like see who's in there before you start the show take some notes do you watch who's there write things down and then you go and start working with it I don't write anything down. 
Um, but yes, I watch every comedian that's on the show start to finish. I sum the room as the crowd starts filling in. I'm paying attention to what their energy is. It's not really about who they are or what they look like or anything like that. It's really for me about energy. I can really feel, okay, this crowd is going to be a little bit rambunctious. This crowd is low energy. I'm going to need to bring them up. Um, this table over here seems to be talking a lot. I'll deal with them quickly and then get them out of the way. They want something. They want their 15 seconds. They want to, you know, they're celebrating a birthday. They want somebody to recognize it's their birthday. And now we can move on with the rest of the show, whatever the, the case may be. So I'm always watching and always paying attention to the audience, the energy of the audience, how they how they seem. And then I also need to know if any other comedian has talked to anybody. I need to watch and make sure like, okay, you know, somebody talked to this guy in the front row. I can't go out and say, what's your name, sir? If his name has already been mentioned or, or what do you do? Well, he's just told the audience what he does. You should know that. Um, you can really lose an audience very quickly by not knowing that. Um, so I'm, I'm always paying attention. I'm always watching. I also just absolutely love stand-up comedy. So I love watching the show anyway. And I would do so even if I wasn't, you know, on the show. Um, but definitely, you, you know, for me, I have to be aware of every single thing that's happened in that room before I get up there and how the audience seems. Ah, okay. So that's what your prep is before you the show. You see what's happening there, and then you just talk in it and you go into it. And as you go into the stage, do you what's like your first thing to get you in the flow before you do all of the things you do? Where you go to this point or that point? What's the little thing you do? Do you do a shimmy? Do you do a slap? I don't know. Um, there's no shimmy. Uh, although I might start doing a shimmy. Uh, <laughs> No, you know what, for me, the main thing is I must clear my mind. I, I must have a completely um, clear and open mind. So if I'm going through something, you know, if if there's something weighing heavily on me, some, some personal issue or, you know, um, something like that, I have to get that out of my mind, clear it, leave it over here and go do this. I have to be in the moment. I must be as present as I possibly can. If there's something weighing on my mind and I haven't cleared it, it's not going to be good because it's, it's distracting to me. And I, I, there's something I'll miss. There's something I won't pick up on. There's little things that I, I won't hit. So for me, right before I go on, um, actually for quite a while leading up to going on, I'm clearing my mind and where that came from actually was a piece of advice an old hockey coach gave to me when I was about eight years old, maybe nine years old. My parents got divorced when I was a kid and I was coming, I was not handling it well. And I would go to the arena um, to, to play hockey. And my coach would notice like, I, I'm not there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not playing well. And I'm, my mind is not focused on the game. And he said, you know, listen, I know you're going through a lot. I know that, you know, this is a tough time for you. But when you come to the rink, leave your leave your problems at the door, come in, play hockey, focus on the game. And when you leave, your problems will still be there. Like 
they aren't going anywhere, but let yourself be here and focus on what you're doing. And I have had that in my mind since I was eight or nine years old. And I use it every single night that I step on stage, whatever I'm going through, you know, a, a few years ago, I had a just for laughs audition. It was my first time auditioning for just for laughs. And my grandma passed away suddenly out of nowhere. And, and it was really shocking to our family and really devastating to, to my mother and I, and, and myself and our family. And it was really just crazy. And I had this just for, I had to go to Florida, her all, that's where she passed away. That's where she lived. We had to drive down to Florida. We had to clean up all of her shit. We had to pack up her whole life and drive all the way back from Florida. And two days after getting back, I had to step on stage for this big, the biggest opportunity of my career. And if I didn't clear my head and have that thing in my mind that my hockey coach gave me all those years ago, I don't know how that would have gone to be perfectly honest. And that was one of the best shows I've had in my whole life. And, and it was really that clearing of the mind being very much in the moment, listening to what's happened before me and then going up and creating something in the moment. And if I didn't, if I didn't have the ability to put shit out of my mind, um, I, I don't know what would have happened there. So I, I it's really, I, my mind must be clear. How do you, how do you just when, bits of the show with your crowd work are going a bit iffy where they're going not as you expect how do you cover it because i find that very impressive one of the things i find really intriguing is when a comic is able to so if a situation seems hopeless in their stand-up set they're able to turn it around into something incredible yeah um for me i, I mean now i can spot it really early like, I, I, you know, if I ask a question, I can usually tell I, I, I'm really good at picking up on cues of facial expression, how somebody's acting, how they're sitting, you know, crossed arms, slouched in a chair, probably not going to be the best person to talk to sitting up, laughing, enjoying themselves. That's the person I'll, I'll ask a question to. If somebody gives me an answer, that's, you know, some people have told me like, uh, my, my, yeah, I just got fired or, you know, something that can go really south really quickly. I will either address it very quick. Like it, it's so split second in the moment. You have to do it like, boom, just whatever the reaction is, you can't live in it. You can't, you know, if somebody goes, I just got fired. You can't go, oh my God, I'm, are you okay? I'm so sorry. Now you've lost. Now everybody's gone. Now you, now it's depressing. So for me, it's a quick, like mention it and then reset and move on to something else like immediately. And I mean, that's come that that's come over time. You know, that there's, there's been lots of trial and error and lots of failure, lots and lots and lots of failure uh, in that regard. But for me, it's, it's moving on very quickly and then picking the right people. And that all comes with, you know, seeing them really paying attention to them, watching how they're reacting to the other comedians as well, and kind of knowing where I can, where I can take things. Mm. Now, and that's one of the great things of having the opener, they get to set the things up for you to recover later on. Um, what, what, what would you say? So if, if, if comic right now is looking at Jeff Leeson and saying, I would like to start like start touring shows and like going up about doing that now, what would be your advice 
for them? Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, know where you are on the show. You, you know, are you a, are you a headliner? Can you, can you take on that burden and that responsibility of being the main act or are you an opening act or are you a host? Um, how much time do you have? Really? Seriously? How much time do you have? Do you have 15 solid minutes or do you have five and for 10 of it you're kind of lost out there and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't and then know that and book around it so if you're if you're somebody that wants to start booking shows and you've got 20 minutes and you're a solid middle book a good headliner and a good host and you go up in middle you make your money from middling and then you make a, an extra booking fee on top of that if you're the one booking it um and, uh, and, and, you know, then from there, it's just a matter of spending the amount of time it takes to book a show. You're not going to book the first venue you email or phone. You're not even going to book the first, like sometimes I send 300 emails out to 300 venues and book one of them. One, what kills me, and I was actually just talking to a friend of mine the other day, him and a buddy wanted to do a show. Uh, they had a Saturday show and they wanted to book a Friday show. And the one of the guys said, I'll book it. <clears throat> so, and he calls him uh, four weeks later, four weeks later, he's at four weeks to do something. And he said, uh, Hey, bad news. We're not going to be able to fill that Friday. <clears throat> and the, the other guy said, well, what happened? I thought you were saying, I thought you said you were going to book it. And he said, well, I called two places and they both said, no, two, you called two. I mean, you got to email, you got to call every single fucking venue in the area that you think would be good at stand-up comedy. If it doesn't work in that city, move cities. If it doesn't work in that town, move to another town. I mean, you have to go, 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 go until somebody finally says yes. Hmm. It's, it's just not the way it happens. So I would say, you know, know where you are on the show, know your limits, know exactly who um, where you should be, and then find the appropriate venue uh, to do so. And how do you, what's your tips for, what's your tips for not making a loss? <laughs> Obviously you are going to make a loss, but what's, 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 what's your advice for not making a ridiculous loss? Ridiculous loss, meaning financially? Yeah. That's going to happen. That I, that's just going to happen. It's, there's no way around it. You're going to lose money in, in the, in the beginning of comedy, you're going to lose money sometimes for 10 years, eight years, nine years, 15 years for some people. It's just the way it is uh, until you can sell tickets. That's when you make money. If you can sell, you know, if you get, if you, even, even in one city, like if you're, if you're in a small town or something and you've built up a bit of a name and you know, you can sell, two or 300 tickets at 25, 30 bucks a pop. That's when you actually make money. But otherwise just try and cover your cost and keep learning. I mean, there's, there's no way around losing money um, in this industry. It happens to literally everybody. The more risk you take, the bigger the reward can be, but also the bigger the, you know, the, the bigger the loss can be. So um, I would say get comfortable with losing money and try to do something that makes you money, uh, you know, enough money to play with, like you try to get a, a decent job that will allow you to, you know, play 
play around financially a little bit and kind of see what works and then just trial and error what worked and what didn't how, how did you were you able to book a show for 60 people and sell 60 tickets at 20 bucks a pop and you bring in 1200 bucks how do you divide that if you're paying a headliner you know five hundred dollars make sure you keep a little bit don't overpay don't underpay um you know don't overpay for a headliner that's not that good don't underpay a headliner that is actually really good and you're getting an, an amazing show and you're offering them shit money because you're going to get a bad reputation um but i would say there's just absolutely no way around not losing money in the beginning and that's all about how bad you want it do, do you want it do you really want it if you're getting into comedy to make money you're in the wrong damn business this this is not a, a business to make money immediately it's going to take a lot of a lot of years to actually make money. and then to make a full-time living is going to take damn near forever depending on how much time effort and energy you're willing to put in um, to it. But I would say uh, get as comfortable as possible with losing money and try to book it, you know, try to book these shows for a reasonable price where you don't lose money if you can, but breaking even is probably going to be, you know, the first several years of time in standup. Hmm. And before I go, what, before, what would you say, how, how would you like to be remembered? Um, it's a good question. I would say, you know, I, I would like to be remembered as a guy who, who absolutely did everything he fucking could to, to make a go at this. It, like he, he I, I want people to say that, that guy, whatever, you know, I, I, I may never be rich or famous or any of that stuff. I mean, that, that stuff is so, um, you know, wild out, out of this world sort of stuff. So I don't even think about that kind of stuff. My, my thing is, you know, I, I would want people to say like, he absolutely did everything he could in this, in this business. He, he, he tried everything. He did it his way. He did it, um, to the best of his ability. And he literally tried and everything and whatever success I have reached or will reach. I, I just hope they say he earned it. Nobody handed him shit. He wasn't an industry darling. He wasn't on all the shows and all the festivals. And, you know, he wasn't getting seven minutes on TV. Like some people are constantly and stuff like that. He earned every fucking step of the way. And, uh, and, and, you know, he, he did everything that he could. I, I just, I would love to be remembered as a guy who um, just tried, just tried. He tried no matter what. However, if I, I, I feel like I'll probably die either on stage or shortly after, um, you know, because I, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go until I can anymore. But um, yeah, I would love to be remembered as a guy who just, he, that, that guy really put every single thing he could in, into this. Mm -hmm. Well, that's been Jeff Leeson, everyone. Um, and how, how, how does everyone find out about you, Jeff? Like what your social media handles and like how do they get in contact if they like what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, on uh, TikTok, if you want to see some TikTok videos, it's uh, Jeff Leeson Comedy. 
Uh, Instagram is at Jeff Leeson Comedian, and my website is jeffleesoncomedy.com. You can also find me on YouTube at The Jeff Leeson Show. Okay. Guys, that, you know where to go to get a hold of him. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star view on Amazon or iTunes, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.